0: So this is how we should pray. And then we take the words that Jesus says, and what do we do? We make them empty mantras and repetitive empty prayers, right? So we've missed the whole point. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. went up to shake somebody's hand and I realized my hands are freezing <laughs> so I said sorry about that cold hands so let's do this for a minute warm up our hands yeah we have one Sunday or two a year that it's a little bit chillier uh, in the gym and this is one of those Sundays but so squeeze in let's do the holy huddle here no um, welcome this morning if you need a Bible raise your hand we're gonna um, be in Matthew chapter 6 today so please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 or the Bible app Uh, And we will be um, doing a special message today. So Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of the year, the first Sunday of the decade. And it's hard to believe it. We are now in the 20s, the 2020s, crazy. And as we begin a new year and a new decade, um, there's a lot of people emphasizing their goals and their ambitions and their um, desires for the year and for the next decade. And some people have said, you know, I've resolved to lose weight this year. And I want to make wiser decisions with my health. And that's a good thing. It's a great goal. I'm on that path probably. Still going to have some donuts here and there this year. Uh, there are some who are looking at their finances and they want to pivot a bit and say, you know, we want, to, we want to spend less, we want to save more, we want to think ahead. And that's a great plan. I think we should all think that way. Uh, this may be the time of year where a lot of us are evaluating our habits and kind of thinking through. Uh, The decisions we're making and and maybe stop practicing things that are unhealthy or unhelpful and really start taking stock of what our life's purpose really is. It's a good time to do that the beginning of each year. But as a church family and as a community of Christ followers collectively together that we call Shoreline Church, I wonder what would be the best way to kick off a new year in the next 10 years? Uh, I was considering what today's sermon would be about And I really think the most important thing that we can focus on as a church to begin this year is prayer, the idea of prayer, learning why we pray, what we should pray, and how we should pray, and then actually taking time together before communion and praying together as a church. So if you're that introvert who does not like to pray with people, um, just let you know that's coming. So just prepare yourself a little bit. Uh, And so um, I I just really think it's important that we take some time and seek the Lord together. One person said it well, and I wanna put this quote on the screen. They said, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, well, we get what eloquence can do and so on. But then he says, nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. And that's my desire for us as a fellowship. What does God wanna do in and through your life, in and through my life, through our collective lives, and our unified community here at Shoreline in the coming days? What does God wanna do? well, then we can't wax eloquent. We can't just give business principles and strategies. We have to look to the word of God and we have to look to the God of the word and trust that in prayer, God's gonna do what he's going to do. And we're gonna seek not our will in heaven, but his will on earth. And so my prayer is that that God's gonna work not divorced from our cooperation or our submission to him. Does that make sense? I'm praying that we will be unified and joined in in what God is wanting to do. So today we're going to study a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 6. So look at Matthew chapter 6. In this chapter, we find ourselves right in the center of perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have mountains here in Florida. We have overpasses, but just go with it. There are mountains. And so this is a mountain that Jesus is speaking to his disciples from, and he's explaining to them the way of the kingdom. You could say the way of the gospel, or even simply just say the way of Jesus. And so the way of Jesus, according to his Sermon on the Mount, is completely countercultural to this world. It's a a way that is founded right from Matthew chapter five, verse one, that's founded upon spiritual poverty, upon a brokenness, upon a seriousness over sin, over a, a genuine desire for true righteousness. It's founded upon mercy, purity, peace, and steadfastness in the midst of trouble. The way of Jesus basically then means it's the Uh, Exact opposite of the way of this world, which is pride and arrogance and power and prestige and ruthlessness and comfort, which the world says these are the important things. So the way of Jesus is countercultural to this world. And it's attractive, Jesus says, to those who are in darkness and to those who are seeking something real. And it takes this outward compliance to the law, which we've been learning about in Galatians, and turns it into an inward posture of the heart. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, which is really the theme of this chapter and the theme of the entire sinner section of Jesus' sermon, look at verse 1 with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says here, beware or watch out or take heed. Now he's not saying beware of practicing righteousness. That's not what he's saying. He's actually already assuming that everyone is practicing righteousness because righteousness is extremely practical. So it's not this mythical uh, or mystical uh, experience that's ethereal, that's kind of out here like that's righteousness. We know that his righteousness has been imputed to us and yet we are to work out and walk out the salvation he's done in us. We're actually to. We're allowing those good works to flow through us. And someone might say, Well, I don't know if I'm righteous, Uh, pilgrim. And I would say, Well, keep practicing. (laughs) You are righteous if you've trusted Christ. That uh, righteousness from him has been imputed to you. But now we're to work that out, we're to walk that out, we're to practice it. And so Jesus explains in the next few verses what he means by that. Uh, A moment ago, he just said, We should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and we'll be filled. And, and about 30 seconds before that, he said that that righteousness is supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, how would that be possible if the Pharisees were the most biblical, legalistic extremist group out there? And when I say biblical, I do it with uh, the quotes. Well, if scripture's the best way to interpret scripture, then we have to say, what does Jesus mean by, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees? We have to look at all of scripture. And this week I was really amazed. I was stunned by this graphic, which is a picture I want to show you. It's a picture of the entirety of the Bible and how every verse in the Bible links to another verse. And so this is a kind of a cross-reference picture of all of the Old and New Testament and how all of the Bible kind of comes together. So if we zoom out and look at all of Scripture, what did Jesus mean by your righteousness is supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees? Well, if we look at Matthew 23 later on, and we're going somewhere with this, follow me. Matthew 23 on the screen. Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. So in other words, do what they're teaching you to do, but don't follow their example. For they preach, but they do not practice. And then Jesus, then after that, begins to give a whole host of issues that these religiously outward observers did in their outward preachiness, but they didn't have an inward reality. And they did things like making salvation very complicated for people. They uh, didn't make good disciples. They had legalism, but not love. And so Jesus gives them seven woes. He says, woe to you Pharisees. And I'd rather hear well done than woe. And so Jesus essentially says, these men are keeping the outward signs, but there's nothing real inwardly. They're telling you what to do, but they're not actually practicing it. And so Jesus begins Matthew chapter six saying, don't be righteous like the Pharisees are. Don't just do it outwardly, have it inwardly, have an inward reality. And so what I wanna do is look at one of these three things that Jesus talks about when he talks about practicing your righteousness. He goes on to give the big three that the Pharisees loved to do. It was almsgiving or, or charitable giving. It was prayer and it was fasting. Now they love to do those things outwardly. They love to kind of look around And kind of ring some bells as they put the money into the coffers and kind of like, oh, hey, let me roll out another hundred as I put the money in. They loved to be seen. They didn't want it to be secret, wanted everyone to know. They wanted to pray publicly. Let me walk into the square and I'll just begin to pray publicly. But they wouldn't pray privately. They loved to show people that they were emaciated and sickly and tired. And you go, what's the matter, Bob? And you go, oh, you have no idea. I've been fasting for days. And so thank you for praying, pray for me, pray for me. I'm going through it right now. I'm trying to fast and just be spiritual and holy. And and so they wanted people to know that. They didn't want it to be a private affair. And so Jesus says, we need to to practice our righteousness from the heart and not outwardly. And so what I wanna do today is focus our attention on that idea of prayer, the idea of prayer. And it's so funny because I'm just realizing, thank you sound guys, I'm realizing I'm not even wearing my microphone right now. So this is great. I'm going to go ahead and put that on. There we go. How's that? <laughs> oh, now you can hear me. Let's start over. Matthew chapter 6. <laughs> All right. It's the first of the year we got the big mistake done with. I have nightmares about this, by the way. Total nightmares. It's more of me wearing the microphone into the restroom. But anyway. <laughs> the title of today's sermon is Our Father. But you could just as easily title it How to Not Pray Like a Pharisee. How to not pray like a Pharisee. So let's skip down to verse 5. And I want to look at three aspects of prayer this morning. Number one, the where and the when of prayer. The where and the when of prayer. Look at verse 5. Jesus says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so here we have a do not and a do. Clear instruction. The Pharisees love to pray publicly. They love to be seen. They love to be noticed. They love to be given recognition. And Jesus says, that's it. That's your reward. That's all you're getting. So if we aren't to make public prayer an overkill, then what are we to do? Well, notice with me, Jesus is not denouncing public prayer. He's not saying you shouldn't pray in public. He's just saying that shouldn't be the only time that you pray. Like, we pray publicly as a fellowship. We pray weekly in our services, whether it's the worship leader or uh, whoever's preaching. We invite you every week uh, to pray during our time or every month during communion. We invite you back in the back for prayer every single day church gathering. We have a church prayer wall on Facebook. Uh, if you're on social media, we encourage you to um, share your prayer requests or be a part of the prayer wall uh, so that you can pray for the requests that we have. And we have a men's prayer meeting every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. at the port. Uh, and if men, if you haven't known about that, that starts again this Wednesday. So join us at 6 a.m for about an hour of coffee and prayer. So public prayer is something that that we as a church practice It's something scripture esteems, so Jesus isn't denouncing public prayer. He's denouncing, listen, the wrong motivation. If you're only praying just publicly to be noticed, you're only praying so that people exalt the prayer itself, well, then your prayer stayed in the room. It just hung in the air with limited effect. So Jesus says, here's what it looks like. When you pray, he says, go into your room, shut the door, And make it a secret thing. Now, when Jesus says go into your room, some have translated that the prayer closet or the war room. Maybe you've seen that movie. The the spot that you have where you go set aside, not publicly. In other words, you don't say, hey, I'm going to be live in five minutes on my prayer wall. No, you don't do that. You're not going to broadcast this. Instagram, I'm going live to pray. No, this is a private place, a private time. But the question is, do we have a secret prayer life? And I would say we should. Every believer should have a secret prayer life. No one else should have access to that secret place except God. Now, that place may be your car. It may be your office. It may be the break room. uh, Maybe it's the couch. Maybe it's the corner of your room. But we all need a place where we go and meet with God. And it's not necessarily about the time and location, the when and where, but the who and the why. So who are you going to meet with every day and why do you do it? There should be a conscious decision every day uh, as we get in our cars to put on our seatbelts. It's really almost unconscious. We just we know we're gonna do that. We're gonna put it on our seatbelt. And we're not gonna think through that question, like, should I do this today? No, I, I know it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient, but we shouldn't be questioning that. Like, you know what, if I didn't put my seatbelt on today, I could get in an accident. But what are the chances of me getting in an accident? I'm just gonna leave it off today. No, we should unconsciously or just just very clearly Um, reflexively put it on and not make the wrong decision and this is how we should begin each day in prayer. It, It shouldn't be, you know, should I spend a little time hearing God's voice in his word and then letting God hear my voice in prayer? Uh, this is kind of inconvenient. This is uncomfortable, but, and, you know, I know it's helpful. Maybe I'll just skip today, but there's always next day. And, you know, God knows my heart, and, and I know John 3.16, so I'll just quote that, and that's good enough. And, and we miss out on something important. We should just reflexively start every day with prayer and Bible study and not make the wrong decision. I like what Martin Luther said to his barber. His barber on one occasion said, hey, Dr. Luther, how do you pray? And here's, here's his response. He said, it is a good thing to let prayer be the first business in the morning and the last in the evening. Guard yourself against such false and deceitful thoughts that keep whispering, wait a while. In an hour or so, I will pray. I must finish this or that. Thinking such things, we get away from prayer into other things that will hold us and involve us till the prayer of the day comes to naught. Can you relate to that? The, just the needs of the day get going and it's just... It gets neglected. We set it aside. We don't pray. Now, let me just be real here. There's not a single person in this room today, I venture to say, that kind of says, "Ah, yeah, my prayer life's good. Like, I'm good. I I actually pray enough, Pastor. So if you need an example, just call me forward. I'll come forward this morning and and share my prayer life. No, none of us are there. We can all admit today we're not praying enough. Can you admit that this morning? Can you just say out loud, yes, I'm not praying enough. Let me hear it. Yeah, all right, cool. Just need to see you're awake. So In my life, let me just share my prayer life for a little bit, okay? I'm not going to be a Pharisee and, like, give all of the details, but let me just share a bit, okay? In my life, I have a spot. It's a chair I call the man chair. It's a man chair. It's pretty manly, so it's an appropriate title. Now, at my house, my man chair is in my living room, and every morning it's my desire uh, to go out to that man chair before anything happens, before I get on the phone, before I start kind of checking the bank accounts and checking social media. I want to get to that chair and I want to open my Bible and I have a little kind of Bible reading plan that I go through so that I'm reading chapters in the old and the new. Uh, Then I have New Morning Mercies from Paul Tripp, available now at the Resource Center. Um, have that as a great devotional. I try to read Spurgeon's Morning. I never get to his evening and so I have no idea what he says in the evening, but I always try to get to the morning. I'm I'm a morning person, not a night owl. Uh, And so then I'll spend time um, maybe on the Bible app on my phone, maybe not, and I try to pray. And when I pray every morning, I pray for two things. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit, fill me with wisdom. Those are the two things I need. I need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit today, and I need the wisdom of God by his word to be able to lead his people. And and so I pray for that. I pray for my wife, Jen. I pray for my son, Aidan, my daughter, London. And I pray for people in our fellowship who are sick, who are suffering. Sometimes people are brought to mind. I do have an app, which is an amazing app called Echo. Uh, It's a free app, Echo, E-C-H-O. It's a green arrow. And this is an app that can remind you to pray. And so I have as many people as I can think or who have asked for prayer. I put them in the app, and it reminds me in that moment to pray. So have you ever been in that situation where someone comes up and says, "Hey, hey, can you be praying for me? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll be praying for you. (laughs) You know what comes next, right? You forget. You forget to pray for them. And then they see you next Sunday, and they go, oh, thank you so much for praying for me. And you're like, yeah, uh, my pleasure. You know, and you're starting to turn beet red, and you're like, I didn't pray for them at all. And so then quickly you're like, Lord, you're outside of time, so you know that I should have prayed for them earlier, so I'm praying for them now. And then you go, yeah, no problem. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) Glad I prayed for you. Uh, That happens. And so I try to use this little app to remember to pray. Sometimes I pray on my commute, and so that means I'm putting on worship music, and I'm trying to tune my heart to the grace of God. I'm thanking God for his mercies, and then I get cut off by someone in traffic, and so my prayer changes a bit, right? I begin to pray for that guy and say that kind of prayer. Um, then I get to my office uh, at the port, and I have what I call my business chair. And what is that? That's where I do business with God. So it's outside of my desk. If you ever come in and I'm sitting in this chair, that's where I'm doing business with God. And before I leave the day, at the end of the day, I try to go back to that chair and take my to-do list, pray through it, thank God for what he did today, and say, Lord, I'm going to leave a lot of this heaviness here. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to be a good father and a good husband. And so then I drive back home, usually listen to a podcast, but when I get home, I pull in the driveway and I put it in park. And that's a different prayer. (laughs) That's a prayer of, Lord, I don't know what I'm about to walk into today. (laughs) Uh, uh, This could be sheer pandemonium. This could be on the verge of the apocalypse. I'm not sure what I'm about to walk into, but, Lord, help my heart to be right. Help me to love my wife. Help me to serve my family and not bring the demands of ministry and the the headaches that are going on into my home. Help me to have the right spirit and the right heart. And then I walk in, and, you know, some days I'm praying a little bit longer in my car than others. But um, ultimately, that's how I pray. And then in the evening, before bed, uh, Jen and I usually try to pray and there's a time of confession. Lord, I did sin in traffic today. Lord, Lord, forgive me. And I reflect on the day and I try to keep short accounts with God. That's just my prayer life. And there's often spontaneous prayer and, and there's times where people are going through needs and so we stop what we're doing, time out. We gotta pray right now for people. But prayer should be a habitual part of our lives. Like brushing our teeth, like clicking the seatbelt. It's just part of what we do. It's a, it's a time that we spend with God. We've got to make the time. That's the, the where and the when of prayer. And Jesus seems to be assuming that we are praying. He says, and when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. This is just something that we must be doing. So now I want to look at the why of prayer. Look at verses 7 and 8. The why of prayer. Verse 7 says this And when, here it is again, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then he says this, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so have your attention. He first said, don't pray like the Pharisees who like to pray publicly, but they're not really praying privately. But now he's saying, don't pray like the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, the idea behind this is the idea of many words in verse 7. Many words. The idea is vain repetition. Some Bible translations say Vain repetition. The Gentiles thought that to their gods, the louder they were, or the more they repeated a phrase like a mantra, the more their false God would listen to them. So we actually have a precedent in scripture. In Acts 19, you can look at it later, there's a crowd that began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they did that for two straight hours. They're just singing out this prayer Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, two hours. Uh, In 1 Kings 18, The prophets of Baal were crying out to their false god, Baal, for 12 hours. So this is an entire day of the same prayer over and over and over. In fact, some Jewish rabbis taught that whoever prays the longest in a prayer meeting is the one who's truly heard by God. But notice that Jesus calls this heaping up empty phrases. In other words, this is so encouraging to me. You and I, when we pray, we don't have to wax eloquent or long in our prayers for God to hear us. Isn't that kind of encouraging? You don't have to have the best eloquent prayer in the group for God to hear your prayers. In fact, Jesus told the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee began to pray this eloquent prayer. The tax collector didn't even look up, but he beat his chest, he looked down, and he just said, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said that was the appropriate prayer. I like what John Bunyan said. He said, when thou prayest, Rather, let thy heart be without words than thy words without heart. I love that. In fact, notice verse eight. Jesus seems to be implying that God our Father already knows what our prayer request is, even before we say it out loud. So, well, then why are we praying? If God already knows what we need, can't we just start today like, hey, God, you know what I need? So I'm gonna get to that Netflix show. Thank you so much. Praise you, Lord. Well, no. This means that prayer... Is this remarkable notion, listen, that I can converse freely with God. I can do that free of condemnation. I can do that free of pretense and superficiality. I can pray knowing that the Father knows what I need before I ask him. So that means I'm freed up now to just pray boldly, honestly, humbly, and full of transparency. I don't have to pray with fear that I'm going to be ignored. Now, a lot of times in our culture, we, we put on pretense, we put on masks so that people think that we're greater than we really are. In fact, on Instagram, we will do everything we can to get the right shot. Oh, we gotta retake that. Did you guys try family photos this year? <laughs> like, okay, we gotta do it again. No, no, oh, you know, little Johnny is, is like turning his head and his head's blurry and so we gotta redo it. The dog ran off, I've been in those times. Right, so we stop everything, redo it, get the right filter, get the right angle, get the right lighting, everything's perfect, and that's not real life. And so we do the same in our prayers. But the reality is when we stand before or rather kneel before God, he sees through all the filter. He sees through all of the, the masks that we put on. He knows who I am, and he knows what I need. And so in front of a church community, I can fake prayer uh, in front of others, but I can't fake prayer in front of God. So why not freely just speak with him every moment that I'm able? See, that's why Jesus said in verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. The word for hypocrite is in the Greek very complicated. And what it means is one who answers in a play, in a monologue, or recites a poem or a part of the performance under a different character. And so it literally means someone who comes out on stage and pretends to be someone else. You could say a theatrical liar. That's a good definition of a Pharisee. Or I'm not sorry, uh, a hypocrite. Someone who is a theatrical liar. And this concept is ingrained in our Western culture. It's really easy for us to point the finger at someone else. Like, yeah, that represents, I'm thinking of a hypocrite right now. He's not here today, but I'm thinking of him. No. The idea is that that's we often can pray. Our communities of Lakewood Ranch, Sarasota, Bradenton, are very shallow communities. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that the region that we're in has kind of a sense that people are into you, that they're with you, that they're kind of like friends with you. They're generally alongside you, but the reality is as you begin to get a little bit deeper, you go, wait a minute, all of that kind of wealth and that attitude and that pomp is kind of superficial. There's nothing skin deep beyond that. Uh, It's a facade. It's makeup. And and I'm not against makeup, but I'm for natural beauty. And when we realize that all of us here today are unworthy sinners, that none of us deserve his grace, that we're in need of his salvation, we can all look around and take a deep breath at at our congregation and realize I don't have to put on spiritual makeup to impress anyone in this church. I don't have to pray a long prayer to be amen or applauded. I don't know if you've ever heard of... um, this thing in the food industry called food stylists. Have you ever heard of this? So there are advertisements for food, and the food stylist is employed to make food look better. That sounds like a great job, right? Your whole job, that's your whole job, is to take something wonderful and make it look even more wonderful. (laughs) Sounds great. And so um, often what will happen is I'll be watching television and there will be an ad that will come on for something, It'll be some type of food that that is attractive. And from that ad, it will lure me in. I guess the best word you could use is lust. It it lures you in like lust to want that, to crave that item. And the thing is, church, uh, those food stylists are often working with things that are not actually food. You see that big plate of mashed potatoes? Uh, or I'm sorry, ice cream. It's actually mashed potatoes because if you put ice cream uh, in front of the camera, the cameras melt it. So they scoop mashed potatoes and then they drizzle it with chocolate syrup to make it look like ice cream. So there's that kid with the ice cream cone. Thankfully, he doesn't take a lick because he'd spit it out. But I've seen this. You've seen this. Burger King is actually known for this. You know what you see on the ad versus what you actually get, right? I want a Whopper. Well, what I saw on the left is not what I actually got. You get this. These are fast food hypocrites, okay? A hypocrite is nothing more than a play actor on the stage of life. So when we pray, prayer should be intentional, it should be real, it should be honest, and it should be raw. That's why David in the Psalms, as we studied this summer, we saw that he prays sometimes that God would attack his enemies, in the imprecatory Psalms especially, and, and so the psalms weren't meant to be these polished worship songs. They were meant to be sung from the heart and to be real. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is a real thing. It's a private thing. So can we stop dressing it up with lights and makeup and ketchup? Let's just keep it real. Let's pray real, raw, honest prayers. In the same sermon later, Jesus says this in Matthew 7:7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be open. The idea here in the Greek is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. 1 Thessalonians 5 exhorts us to pray without ceasing. I think it's really cool that our kids' ministry today has a different theme idea. And today the idea is to trust God in prayer. So our kids right now are learning what we're learning today. Pretty rad. And so this means we pray without ceasing. It means this it means that because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf at Calvary, God has now invited you and I to spend time communing with Him, to intercede for others, and to constantly come to the fountain and receive mercy and grace in our times of need. So we pray not because we got to pray, but we get to pray. And I think it's important to understand that Jesus is is saying, listen, you don't want to be like the hypocrites like the Pharisees. You don't want to pray publicly, but not privately. You don't want to be like the Gentiles where you pray all these long mantras that are dead and empty. But he doesn't just leave us there like, okay guys, now you get it. In fact, at one point the disciples were like, hey, can you you teach us how to pray? And so he then says, this then is how you should pray. So this is the third idea, the what of prayer. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Well, we'll go all the way to the end of 12. He says, pray then like this, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. Now notice that Jesus didn't say, pray exactly this. Did he? No, he said pray like this. Okay? So this is not a formula, but it does give us a great template for prayer. So the first thing that we see in Jesus' prayer, if you're taking note, the first thing we see is that um, the first thing we're to do in prayer is, number one, to address God rightly. We're to exalt him and we're to address him rightly. Jesus addresses God as our Father in heaven. And he mentions God the Father 12 times in this chapter. If you think about it, that's an interesting dynamic as you think about God being our Father. Father was Jesus' favorite way of addressing God. So much so that Jesus uses this word for God 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels, and over 100 times in the Gospel of John. That's a huge jump over the 15 or so times that Father is mentioned in the Old Testament. And so Jesus uses the word for father, but the actual word in the Aramaic is the word Abba, okay, not the band. It's a word that you, we've said this recently, it's not not a word that um, we understand in our culture. A similar word would be a word your little five-year-old girl would use when you come home. It's the word we might say daddy. But the word Abba actually would be used by older children and adults. So daddy doesn't even fit as well as father. It's an intimate term, though. It's an intimate term for a father. Um, This was a distinction that only Jesus could truly have, a relationship with his heavenly father that no one would dare to claim. And yet, in this chapter, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, he says, we should, as Christ's followers, address his heavenly father as our heavenly father. This is amazing. One of my friends, Justin Holcomb, says this. He says, this is because through faith... In the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, we are adopted by God into his family. God becomes our loving father because we are united with Jesus Christ and receive the same family privileges and blessings that Jesus has as the faithful son. Because of our adoption into the family of God, we now have complete access to our father. We have been adopted into his family. That's how we're able to pray. If you're not regenerated by faith, you're still dead in your transgressions and sins, your prayer will not necessarily reach the heavens. You're not praying, Our Father, because you have not yet been grafted into His family. But yet, when you're grafted in, when you're a part of the family, we have the same rights and privileges as the natural born children get to experience. So that means prayer means we don't have to pretend. We don't have to look impressive to the other orphans. We can say together, He's our Father. And that means I'm a part of a community of adoptees, and we collectively, as image bearers, can seek our heavenly Father not to pray for our will to be done, but for his will to be done on earth. One man used to say this, and I'm going to start saying this. He said, you know, I need to talk to my father about this, and and I love that. I I need to spend some time and talk to father about this. So we start in prayer, Jesus says, by addressing God rightly. Secondly, though, if you're taking note, secondly, we petition God humbly. What does that mean? Well, if you notice, Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So this means that we ask for his kingdom to come. We ask for his will to be done. That means that now I've got a kind of a, a, Align my heart and my life to his will. Have you prayed for that lately? Have you prayed, Lord, I don't know if my will is, is in step with your will. Your will is to reach this community. Your will is to do good. Your, your will is uh, for redemption. I haven't been seeking your will. I've been seeking my will. And so my prayers have been flat. They've been kind of shallow and self-centered. Lord, I want to pray for your will to be done. I want to line up my will with your will. Uh, so we start with that. We start, all prayer starts with who God is, not what we need. Does that make sense? We start with him, and then we get to our needs like our daily bread. Now, I love that Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say, give us this day our daily Ferrari. Or (laughs) I guess in his day, our daily chariot. He didn't pray that. He said, give us this day our daily bread. So we're affirming, I'm going to look to the Lord to meet my most basic of needs. I'm going to trust him and submit to him. Even if I've got money and investments, I'm still going to trust him. For my daily needs. So, this is where we petition God with humility. But, thirdly, because of his goodness, it is through prayer that, number three, we receive mercy constantly. Notice that repentance and confession are part of this daily prayer. So, we ask God to save us from evil and temptation. And then we ask God to give us mercy and to forgive us as we forgive others. Now, it's hard to pray that prayer when we have bitterness towards others. But see, we could just spend spend like an entire month and not exhaust these verses. In fact, when I read through it earlier, many of you began to recite it. You almost didn't even need to look at the Bible. You just started, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You started reciting it. Um, I I think it's funny that in context, Jesus is saying, follow me here. He's saying repetition and empty phrases and mantras have no substance. They're not really prayers. They're just words. And so this is how we should pray. And then we take the words that Jesus says, and what do we do? We make them empty mantras and repetitive, empty prayers, right? So we've missed the whole point. Um, It's ironic, but Jesus is not saying you must pray exactly this. This is the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is actually in John chapter 17. This is the disciples' prayer. But often God doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we hoped. As we pray for our daily bread, as we pray for forgiveness, as we pray for his will to be done, often what we pray for is not what we get. I like what one uh, poem kind of said about this. This poem said this, I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things, but I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy, I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I, among all men, am most richly blessed." Often that happens. We pray, and what we think God's going to do in our prayer request ends up being something completely different. But our application this morning is straightforward. Because of the gospel work of Christ, we can engage in gospel prayer. What does that mean? What is gospel prayer? Well, it's the opposite of Pharisaical prayer, and it's the opposite of Gentile prayer. We just learn what gospel prayer is. Prayer is possible because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. So this means as his adopted sons and daughters, our prayers should look like this. We address God rightly, we petition God humbly, and we receive mercy constantly. That's what prayer looks like. It's saying, I don't have all the answers. I can't engineer this in my own strength. And so because I'm brought to an end to myself, I'm going to turn and submit my life to God. Now, why not do that at the beginning of the trial? Why do we have to wait till we're in the thick of it to trust him? Why not do that when things are, are good, the sun's shining on us, when life seems to be together? We need to continue to pray gospel prayers. We're going to close, and we're going to do something different this morning. I'm going to uh, close this by praying a prayer from the Valley of Vision. So let's go ahead and close our Bibles. And what I want to do after I pray this prayer is I want us to get in small groups, five or six um, people. And what we're going to do is um, after I say amen, we're going to kind of shuffle into some groups. And we're going to put some prayer requests on the screen. And we're just going to ask two or maybe three people in your groups to pray. You don't have to pray long. We just talked about that. You don't have to pray eloquent. Just pray. Just talk to your heavenly father. And um, just keep it simple. And we're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray for our community. We're going to pray for those who are in poverty among us. We're going to pray for our leadership here and for the leadership of the governmental uh, levels. We're going to pray for the persecuted church. We're going to pray for gospel witness to the ends of the earth. We have two missionaries we're supporting. One is Joseph in Sarasota with recovery. The other is Megan in Southeast Asia. Uh, And we're going to pray for the future of Shoreline Church. And our prayer this year is that we'll find a facility to move into. And so we're going to be praying for those things. We're going to start the year off in prayer. And after we're done praying, we're going to sing a song. We're going to stay in those groups. And during the song, we're going to hand out the communion elements. And so you're going to hang on to those elements, and then I'll lead us in a time of communion. Does that make sense? So will you bow your heads with me? when the elements of communion get passed out, I just want to remind you this is for believers. So if you're not a follower of Christ, just let the communion elements pass by you. But I want to pray this prayer from the Valley of Vision Puritan prayer book called The Mediator. And then as I say amen, we'll get into small groups and pray for these things. So let's pray. O oh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hope in thy word. There we see thee, not on a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace. Waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, Not depart, ye cursed, but look unto me and be ye saved. For I am God and there is no one else. That they may know thy name, put their trust in thee. How many are now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall, the freeness, riches, and efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee and will through eternity exclaim, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator in whom all fullness dwells and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To Jesus we look, on him we depend, through him we are justified. May we derive relief from his sufferings without ceasing to abhor sin or to long after holiness. May we feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our consciences. May we delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. May we be constrained by Christ's love to live not to ourselves but to him, to cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments, but being sensible of our trial and impressed with the number and the greatness of thy benefits, may we today bless and praise thee and at all times. Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that at all times, through the good, through the bad, through the times you say yes, the times you say no, the times you say wait, Lord, that we would give you all praise and glory as our heavenly Father. We would trust you to do that good work in and through our lives. We love you. We commit this time of prayer to you as we, as a fellowship, intercede for one another and for our community and for our future so that the glory of God, the goodness of God may be extended to the ends of the earth. We love you, and we pray now that you would bless this time of prayer as we gather together corporately to seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting Shoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.